Welcome back to yet another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, creator, film critic, host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews and interviews 24-7 around the globe and print and online, including BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, you will find me right here on Behind the Lens on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And today, I am so, it's an incredible show today. I am very, very excited about this. Starting number one, because my dear friend and the very uber-talented Stephen Alaric is back with us again. Hi, Dub. Hi, Steve. (laughs) You know, um, sadly, Pam did not play Jar Jar Binks. (laughs) So, You've you've got Jar Jar on there, don't you, Pam? I know you have it. It's on there somewhere. <laughs> Pop it up. <laughs> I'm going to make Pam work. We're going to make Pam work. I don't think she's even heard it. Because Brian and I used to do it all the time. <laughs> and we all know Brian just disappeared, so. Brian. So. Who's <laughs> a Jaja Binks? Who's a listening to Behind the Lens? <laughs> and for those of you that don't know, that is actually Steve. <laughs> That is one of his many talents that actually he, he used for auditions and got a job. Um, so, so that is one of my favorite my favorite things on the show is Jar Jar Binks. Oh, and, of course, now we're getting down to, and it's very appropriate to play it today because of the fact that the new Star Wars Last Jedi trailer drops during, at, during halftime tonight, during Monday Night Football on ESPN. Yeah. There you go, Bob Iger. There's your, there's your plug. Um <laughs> And right after that, tickets go on sale. I know. I know. I can't wait. I saw I saw people posting on social media already how, it's like, oh, I got to get eight tickets and, you know, oh, what time? What time tonight? And I kept posting, you know, after the trailer drops during halftime. Yeah. Figure out when halftime is. Watch the game. Right. Watch the trailer. And then. And then get online. Right. So... Yeah. At least it's online, you know, like back in the day, you'd have to, go to stand the up, you'd have to stand in line behind uh-huh. a million people, you know, for I, hours. I still, I still remember, I was living out here at the time when uh, a lot of the Star Trek films, the original films. Oh, the originals, yeah. Um, Khan, actually. And there were a ton of us from, we were all working on stuff of Universal. Right. And... One person went down to wait in line at the Cinerama Dome for hours. <laughs> and this was before everything was built up down there. We're going back to, you didn't want to go down anywhere near Hollywood and Highland or Hollywood and Vi- right. or Sunset. No, no. Especially <laughs> not for the midnight show kicking it off. There weren't right. any 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock early screenings on Thursday before Friday. No, midnight Right. was the first show. And... By the time a lot of us that were all working, by the time we got down to the dome, the line 
was all the way down the side street um, that I can't think of the name of right now. But the Arclight Complex wasn't there, so it was the dome sitting there. And then the side street all the way back, oh my going God. back. Uh, at, but you had to wait in line to get the tickets. So right. this one poor soul went down, waiting in line to get the tickets so that we could all see the film. I mean, even with Comic-Con, like, you know, that used to be my yearly trip with my brother. You know, yeah. my brother has, my older brother, he has like, I think <laughs> over 10,000 comics. <laughs> he has a ton. Okay. You know, as we were kids. <laughs> no, you know, but so so that was our thing. I mean, to, to do that every year. So we'd go down and the first time we went down, you know, we got like a Sunday pass. We went down on the Sunday and you could just walk, you know, if you were already, um, you know, there, you could just buy your pass for the next year. There's no line. There was no nothing. They just had a desk. Yeah. You just walked up. And then after a couple of years, they were like, you know, I think they, they wanted to bring in new people. They didn't want to, you know, it didn't want to be the yeah. same people year after year. So they just, they just had this system and you had to wait. And now even online, like, you know, you, you try to get in oh. to get your ticket. It's ridiculous. It's, oh my yeah. God. It, it's, it is absolutely amazing. But, and it did. I we we died. What did you do with the sound, Nick? <laughs> Nick. <laughs> All of a sudden, he lost. Nick's in there playing. You know, the station owner, Nick Federoff, should not be allowed near any any buttons, dials, or anything else. We decided that last and week. The impish smile on his face while the, he's doing the, it. Uh, the impish smile. Okay, that that's a new one. The impish smile mm-hmm. on on Nick. But, you know, many of you know, last week I was a guinea pig. Nick is revamping the studios here to make it more television-friendly, camera-friendly, putting in new lights. Well, he's playing again today. Today he's testing audio because last week his audio idea didn't work. So, <laughs> and Like you said, you are the guinea pig. I'm the guinea we pig. We are the guinea pigs We are today. the guinea pigs today. Yeah. So, but we have other people that are going to help be guinea pigs today, too. Because joining us at the quarter hour mark is going to be two incredible filmmakers, two incredible people. I adore them. Remy Abergenois and Kate Nolan. Remy is, of course, son of Renee. I was going to ask that. Yes. Yeah. And they have a film that it debuted. The world premiere was at LA Film Festival 2016 called Bloodstripe. Kate is co-writer along with Remy. Remy directs. It's his directorial debut. It is their first screenplay. And Kate stars in it as a female military personnel sergeant who comes back after three tours of duty. And it addresses the issues of returning to, quote-unquote, normal life for a veteran from a female perspective. And tackles the issues of PTSD. It is, I have said it since the moment I saw the film before it even premiered. It was my number one must-see festival film for 2016 at LAFF. It is a must-see film for all Americans. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is or, you know, what your beliefs are. These are people out doing a job. You know, they get paychecks. They are doing a job. But they're doing a job for us. And no matter what, if you had a truck driver and their truck flipped over, you would have sympathy. You you would want to help them. You would want them to have good medical care. Well, that's the same thing that our veterans deserve. I agree. And this is something that Bloodstripe tackles head on. 
with such power, such sensitivity, and beautiful, beautiful filmmaking. Uh, <laughs> Radium Chang is the cinematographer, and what he and Remy have, have designed visually is stunning. And it creates that beautiful metaphor for the beauty set against the horrors of PTSD. Um, so I'm very excited. Um, Remy and Kate are actually, they're going to the airport today, flying into L.A. to do press tomorrow. But they're doing the show today. That's great. So I'm thrilled about that. And then at the half hour mark, any fans out there of The Man from Earth, 2007 film, uh, Richard Shankman, it is, he has a sequel now, The Man from Earth, Holocene. And it is, you talk about another thought-provoking film. We have our favorite professor, formerly known as Joseph Oldman. Now he is Joseph Young. And huh. he is, well, th and as, as you will see with the, with the film, Steve, there, there are all kinds of references. He's 14,000 years old. Well, that's why the name, when you said Oldman and then Young. And then you know. some of the other names uh. that the character has had, uh, you know, over the course of his years. It's like um, police, uh, police for the Pleistocene era, era um, you know, huh. all kinds of anthropologic and archaeologic things. But the, one of the, I'm not, I'm not going to give away the big reveal, unless Richard wants to when he's on the show. But... Who he actually is is that he's been keeping a secret, which is why he's been continually moving. And where the first movie ended, it had been a night of professors talking, and he told wove this fantastical tale that one of the other professors, played by William Cott, who also returns in this film, uh, as does David Lee Smith, who plays John Young, slash John Oldman, slash huh. John whomever. Um, you know, he's back, but... He had written a book, and it totally destroyed his career. Everybody thought he was crazy for the things he put in the book, and it just forced John to disappear again. So we pick up now, 10 years later, and he's a professor in a college, and you've got some very inquisitive students. I didn't think I'd ever live to say those two words together. <laughs> um, but it's fascinating and it gets into issues ruminations on life observations of the world there's subtle commentary on pollution on aging on self-obsession um, a lot of theological discussion um, sets the stage for you know religion versus science so much is in this film this is the thing you know why I appreciate you and your show sincerely is I think that independent film has always been um, the place where kind of, I, I, I'm not sure how to put it, but art and commentary meet in such a beautiful yeah. way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, and, and I think with how the, the industry is going right now, we're kind of, we get the audience gets the outskirts kind of they get the really big budget high um octane mm -hmm. <laughs> movies um but this to me is why i think most people actually get into 
the industry. Most artists well, this, get in the industry to do this kind of thing, you know. But this is what you like doing too, as an actor. Well, I, and I think that most act most actors do. This is the kind of thing. I think that you know, look, everybody wants to be financially free and everybody wants, you know, everybody, you know, so the things that come along with stardom are very, um, uh, attractive, mm-hmm. but the truth of the matter is, I think that most people who are actors who really enjoy the craft of doing it, these are the kind of things mm-hmm. that they like to do, you yeah. know, every movie has this different challenge. Every project has its challenges, you know, and, and, you know, there's a challenge to do, to do these big budget movies where, you know, you've got to stand in the exact right place and move the exact right way for the visual effects. And you, you know, and you got to make it look natural and it's still got to fit the story yeah. and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's a challenge. But I think the challenge that we kind of enjoy more are these kind of challenges with, that the, come sto- with-, with the story that's right. being told. Right. And, you know, and, and that's not to say that's not to say that there's there that challenge doesn't exist in the bigger movies. Oh, no, but, no, it right. definitely does. Right. It definitely does. But no, I think you're right. So many of the actors that I know, so many directors that I know, they love these kind of films telling these kind of stories because of the fact that the studios won't tell them. Right. Because it's not economically favorable shall right. we say right well let let me say they think it's not it's economic. not that's just it. you know um look a friend of mine actually a really great writer this guy kevin caruso um he uh he and i were talking last night about uh you know uh the model that it seems that studios use in order to make their movies mm-hmm. and look i get it if i put in X millions of dollars in a movie, I, I want it out. And just like business, you you follow templates. You follow, yeah. you know what I mean? Because that's the best chance of getting your money back. But the question here is what template do you follow? Because if you really look at it, the real template here is to tell good stories well. That's, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the real template. Because all these movies that people think, oh, that, that statistics would have said didn't wouldn't do well, you know, end up doing well. You know, so all these little sleeper hits and all these movies that, that, you know, the computer says, hey, this this is going to be a huge hit flop. Why is that? It's because the focus is sort of in the wrong place. In my opinion, I'm not on the inside on all those movies. We're we're seeing it. I think we're we're seeing it more and more, especially (laughs) with the advent of Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, all doing their own original movies now. They're giving good story. It's right. like the mountain between us opened this weekend. You know how much I love this film. Yes, I do. <laughs> I love this film. And they love that you love this film. And Hani Abu Assad, director of the film. I adore Hani. I've known Hani for a number of years. Um, and for him, it was all about telling a good story, making a good film. So we're not see. you know, it takes place on 11,000 feet up on top of a mountain after right. a plane crash. Everybody, cast, crew, everybody, you were 11,000 feet up on top of a mountain for the realism. Right. The whole movie was shot on location. It's not a CGI film. Right. When you see people falling down, you know, a hill of snow and crashing into trees, oh, no. When you see Kate Winslet plunging into water again, <laughs> um, you know, it's real. Right. And it just, it's part of good storytelling. Right. Well, and let's see. I see my blinking red light here. So 
talking about good storytelling, I have two incredible storytellers on the line now. Remy and Kate, are you there? Hi, Deb. We're here. Hi, Hi. guys. How are you? We're very well. Thank you so much. It's nice to talk to you again after this year. Oh, my God. It's, I am so thrilled to have you guys. And with me today is one of your fellow thespians. Stephen Alaric is here in studio with me today. Pleasure to meet you Hi, over Stephen. there. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> you know, and, and I couldn't, it was so perfect to have Stephen come in today because his signature roles that he does quite often are military, law enforcement, you know, very, you know, very similar to Kate's character in Bloodstripe. Great. Well, we're happy to talk to you. Yeah, happy to talk to you too. So, I, I, you've, the film has finally opened in New York, getting ready this week to open here in LA. You know, for the listeners out there who I haven't badgered to death about, when this movie comes out, you have to see it, and this is why. Um, Tell everybody what is the basic premise for Bloodstripe and how the two of you came up with this particular story, which is still, and a year later, is still a very rare story to tell. Yeah, you know, um, so the film, as you know, Deb, is about a female Marine Corps veteran who, uh, it's a war coming home story, war homecoming story which is, of course, one of our oldest stories. But nowadays, we have women who are going through this same experience, and um, it is a new twist on an old, old tale. And women comprise 15% of our active duty military and growing, 20% of our reserves, 345,000 over deployed since 9-11. And uh, it's a story that needs to be told. And we, uh, as we learned about this and as we started to work on the, the story, we, we realized uh, that there really is a space for it. And um, we've been very gratified by the response to the film. And we've had a great festival year since we saw you back in June at the L.A. Film mm-hmm. Festival, where we were so honored to be uh, recognized with the Fiction Jury Prize. Yep. Um, Congratulations. But people have really responded. Uh, veterans, uh, w- women veterans, particularly, are very glad that this story is being told. Well, and, and also we. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead, Kate. Well, also, thanks, Deb. Good to hear your voice. We've also been gratified that that the appeal goes beyond. You know, it, it's definitely resonating among our military. Uh, the community that we've been able to reach thus far, and we're actively strategizing to reach that community on a really broad scale, but also our civilian community. Mm-hmm. People are appreciative, I think, of learning a little bit more uh, around uh, seeing this kind of homecoming story, as, as Remy said, from a new perspective, mm-hmm. and also finding that cer- certain issues in the film resonate universally, uh, aspects around uh, struggle and trauma and and sort of reintegration and and sort of transformation um, are all kind of relevant and resonant themes. Yeah. Um, so that's also very gratifying that we're reaching people within the military community and beyond. Well, and as you say that, Kate, I can't help but think about all the world events that have been transpiring lately with all the mass shootings because all of these people 
and their families that witness this and even just everyday people that see, watch the news coverage, everybody is now experiencing similar forms of trauma and PTSD and have difficulty dealing with it. And I think that's one of the, the great connective tissues. And I don't know, call it, call it fortuitous, serendipitous. Um, I think this is now the perfect time for Bloodstripe to be in the theaters for everyone to see. Yeah, we're feeling that way as well. And we also love seeing just over the summer sort of the success of the powerful female-driven you know, box office hit that was Wonder Woman <laughs> and that incredible sort of um, expression of strength. Uh, you know, that reinvigorated that, that film and that story and then reached that audience and, and, and proved the popularity in that. Obviously, this is, this is a much smaller scale project, but um, sometimes, you know, when, we, when we're feeling really good, we call her, she's our working class Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> we like that. I think there's an appeal to women, too, of seeing a, a female take up this kind of space, the complexity of, of her and the... Uh, and the, the musculature of her and the resilience of her. This is a story about struggle, but it's also a story about resilience and perseverance. You know, and that's something that you just embody so beautifully. Um, as, I, as I have said from the beginning, you are a controlled emotional powerhouse as Sarge. And, I've, you know, I'm sure everybody, actors out there and directors, they're all curious, how do you tap into something that visceral, that raw, that pure, and manage it so that you can bring a character to life? Um, I had time building it because I, I wrote it. You know, Remy and I, we co-wrote it, and I, so we were co-creating her, and that was over many months. And I'd never done that with a, a part that I've played. So she was crafted essentially out of research, deep research, um, my basic sort of acting craft that I've, you know, uh, employed and, and cultivated over years. I've been in school for it and then, you know, I working professionally. And then being able to sort of build the character scene by scene, moment by moment, I think it, I was able to craft her over a long, much longer period of time than I've ever had. Because uh, so ultimately, when we started shooting, I was like, "Am I ready for this?" <laughs> Both Remy and I looked at each other because it was such a compressed pre-production schedule. But by the time we were shooting, you know, it was only nine months. He said, "Yeah, you you made her, you wrote her, you built her." So then it was really just about dropping into her, trusting what we'd made, and giving it absolutely everything I had. And honestly. That was entirely inspired every minute of every day by the real service men and women who who informed me in the research and in the story. I just absorbed them and their their own sort of restraint, strength, and and then a certain de- degree of fragility as best I could. I I in many ways I was the vehicle for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it still ranks up there as one of my all time favorite performances, Kate. You know that. And, oh, thank you so much. You know, hand in hand with your performance, though, is, Remy, how do you prepare? You're helping Kate craft this character of Sarge, but then how do you as a director prepare to put aside the, the fact that, okay, this is also the love of your life that you're working with, 
how do you put that aside and prepare to direct a film like this as a first time director, especially? Uh, you know, because I was wearing many hats, <laughs> I didn't have a whole lot of preparation in terms of, you know, plotting production from a directorial standpoint. It was really a producerial process for me. Really, really liked the film thing where we lost our financing and then had to refinance, but only had a portion and had to figure out how we were going to make it anyway. And, you know, so we had, we had only 16 days to shoot the thing. So it was a sprint. It was a sort of marathon to a sprint. And I surrounded myself with amazing artists. You know, I trusted the people who were, I was working with and I um, accepted their ideas as much as I could and, you know, I was the final say, but really Radium Chung, the cinematographer, you know, brought such art and craft and such an eye. Kate, I trusted implicitly. Um, you know, we had a wonderful production designer in Cassia Mar. We, we, we were, you know, it was a team. I claim no auteur um, <laughs> impact here. You know, this was really just me um, curating ideas and everybody pitching in to get it done. So, um, you know, that, the preparation was just my years as an actor and my trust of my collaborators, I think. Well, you know, I have to ask you about another one of your collaborators, Remy. You know, your dad is in the film as Pastor Art, and I just, I love him in the film. And, you know, when you're collaborating and getting ideas, who wins out, Remy the director or Renee the dad? Well, when Renee is... At 77 now, completely irrepressible, you know. So he, he is uh, a force to be reckoned with, and he has decades and decades of experience and wells of energy as a performer that you kind of just have to, again, direct. You channel it. You don't, uh, you don't get in the way of it. You allow it to, to roll. Uh, so, you know, I had editing power. So that was the, that was all I really could do. Um, but he had the spirit, you know, and his insight in the film is humor, which I'm so grateful for because it's a serious picture. It's a dramatic picture. But um, there are moments of levity that he and uh, Rusty Schwimmer, who, you know, you talked with us uh, mm -hmm. back at LAFF, they really brought that to the film. And I'm so glad to have had that contribution. Well, that's something that's really fantastic about this film because it is such serious, it's a serious subject matter. But then you have Radium's exquisite cinematography that creates that wonderful, that dichotomous metaphor, um, you know, with the horrors of war, the horrors of PTSD, the travesties of, of trying to reacclimate into society again in a quote unquote normal life. But you counter these beautiful, beautiful, northeastern you know woods in our united states that is so peaceful quiet vibrant um you know the uh, fall you know the turning of the seasons the change of color of leaves you blend all of this together so well that it all fits and i that thank you Deb. 
you know, that had to. How challenging was that for you working with your editor, Jeremy Coton? Jer- I mean, the editing is superb. And especially when I'm looking at a lot of the shots in the film, you had an embarrassment of riches with a lot of the stuff that Kate was able to do that Radium was able to capture on film. How do you go about finding that that tonal bandwidth of balance in the editing bay? Well, that was that was a delicate process, uh, and Kate and uh, Jeremy and I and Sky Weiss, our producer, and uh, Julie Christeas, our other producer. Um, you know, it was it was a process. The film we shot in sixteen days, so I'm glad you thought we had an embarrassment of riches. Kate um, remarkably did a lot of the performance in you know one or two or three takes, and um, we took a much longer time to edit. We we found the movie in the edit, and it was a delicate process of of you know a couple steps forward, a couple steps back, and um, it was a conversation between all of us. Kate, Kate really had some of the best uh, insights uh, through the course of the thing. As I said, I don't take auteur credit in, for that. But, um, you know, Jeremy has a wonderful sense of music, mm-hmm. and we use a lot of great indie artists from the Midwest, um, Mason Jennings, Pieta Brown, The Pines, um, a dear friend, Michael Friedman, composed the original score that we have in the film. Um, but Mike, uh, uh, Jeremy was really able to uh, surf that that music and, and create a, a sort of delicate rhythm with the film. Mm. No, and I'm glad you mentioned the score, because the score is beautiful. The score is truly beautiful. That's another one of those contrasts, the metaphoric contrasts that you bring in. Uh, so that, you know, we are always reminded, thanks to Kate's performance, that is always for at the forefront. We understand and we feel exactly what Sarge is going through. But then you have the rest of the world go- happening around her. And the, the yeah, score well, helps. When we were writing, Deb, it was much more, there was, a much, there was more dialogue at times. We delved into certain avenues that are not in the film. And then through the edit, it just became clear that it could it could really sort of it needed to kind of zero in from her to her POV, mm-hmm. and so it got quieter and quieter in a certain way, and that sort of rhythm and and expansiveness of the lake and the difficulty of the struggle was a very fine line. I feel like that Remy, Jeremy, and all of us were trying to walk. So the audience could get into that perspective, be invited in and stay there. And then all of a sudden, you know, sometimes expand into the release and the beauty of, of the location, but also be seized up along with her in some of the ten- tension and tautness of what it is to sort of never be quite free or unburdened um, and at peace. So it, it was really kind of going with her internal finding her internal engine and when we could let her loose and then when 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 things would seize up and and we're finding that the audience you know but for better for worse are going in on that ride as well and and that's the the ideal coming out of that that result of that is is that there's a real great deal of empathy being Mm. you know people are expressing after they they go on the ride little bit what sparks talked about it as a ride it's not an it's not an event 
driven narrative. It's an emotional narrative. So the edit was fluid. We could move large story elements um, because it was really about charting an emotional course through the film for the character. And I think that's what the audience uh, experiences. What, what sparked this story? What, what made you want to tell this to begin with? Well, we were drawn to the location. We knew we were going to be shooting on, that la- on the lake, which most of the film takes place uh, on, and, and specifically at this, this church camp, this old Lutheran church camp, because we knew we could uh, have access to that place uh, fairly easily and for, for uh, not a tremendous amount of money and that it would be a good place to house a, a crew and a cast and then be held by that kind of community, the staff of the camp, which really was an incredible collaborator in the whole process at Camp Vermilion. When we started researching the area surrounding the camp um, and that lake, we, we started finding that there, there's a number of veterans in that area, in northern, it's in specifically northern Minnesota. Uh, there are a high percentage of, of service members and veterans who are who are there, and um, and we just were inspired by some of the stories we were reading around the female veterans who we knew very little about. Neither Remy nor I have any military background, um, but once we sort of were, we knew we wanted to create something totally authentic. Mm. And Remy had also pegged me as the, the that I was going to be the main character because he knew I would give him everything I had. I would work hard, <laughs> and and he knew he wanted the story to be fairly lean. And so we started um, doing research, and then you know once we started reading about these men and women returning from from our war, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, we just realized there was really something there. And then in, it was really in our cultural conversation. There were more and more stories about our female veterans serving in combat and, and, um, and then certainly the, the trouble and some of the challenges with returning and, and the wait times at the, at the VA. Um, and so those stories just started to open up in the news, and we decided to follow it. That's, that's awesome. De- another question you know, you say that you kind of started with the location. Does that, how does that affect your creativity being kind of, you know, confined, let's say when you, when you start with, okay, um, this is where we're going to shoot. This is where the majority of it is going to be. Um, did you find that that actually opened up your, your creativity in, in how to handle the film or did you find that it, uh, was difficult to work with? Yeah. You know, uh, I think that, parameters were incredibly useful for us. Parameters of time, parameters of resources, parameters of location. Um, You know, we know that location very well. Writing very specifically to place, and we were imagining our character whose sort of background and scenario we had conjured. We were imagining our character into this place and thinking, how can we get her here to this beautiful, amazing location? How can we get her into this location? And, and what is the story that will happen? And the story grew organically out of that. And I think the whole process was approaching the doable. You know, we were, it's right. the first film, a first effort for both of us. And it was an exercise in what was possible. And 
that really did force us to um, get creative. Necessity was the mother of invention in this case, for sure. So uh, I th- I, we found it to be very productive, a very productive way to work. So now I know you guys are on your way to the airport heading to L.A., as a matter of fact, correct? <laughs> yes, literally. I hope it's not too distracting. No, no. <laughs> and I know you're going to be with Sylvia tomorrow. We'll see Sylvia tonight. We've got a screening at uh, at the USC School of Cinematic Arts tonight, which I believe is open to the public. So wait, check out the website for that. Okay, wait a minute. You're you're going to fly in, get off a plane, and go to USC? We yep. are. <laughs> oh my we god. Got down, we got this thing down. Guys, yeah. guys. <laughs> oh my god. But I think you're going to be doing press at Sill's office tomorrow. We yeah. will. We will. Well, I'm going to Great news. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I'm going to try and swing by and say hi to you guys tomorrow. Please do. Please, we would love to say hi love to see you. We've just carried you with us. All of your positive affirmations and support really, really has carried us through. Oh. We're, we're so grateful, and, and I'm so happy that, that the film resonates for you, and, and really we're so appreciative of the support, Deb. Seriously, oh, thank you. You know, I will, I will always be there supporting the two of you. Always. Thank you so much, and nice Nice to meet you, too, Stephen. Yes, nice to meet you, too. Yeah, one day I want to see the two of you work on something together. Because I think it would be... All right. It's happened before. It'll happen again. All right. Stop in now. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Guys, thank you so, so much. And hopefully I'll make it over to see you tomorrow. So have a good... Have a good flight. Thanks so much. Nice talking to you both. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Kate's going to make me cry one day. She's going to make me cry. Why? You, you just You know I don't take platitudes well. <laughs> you know that about me. <laughs> yes, I do. You do know that. Yes. Well, you know, and now we're going to jump we're going to jump right, in. right, right into Richard. We haven't even gotten to talk about your NCIS episode uh, last night. Hey. That's oh, okay. Well, okay. So, yeah, and here Nick's in here playing again, people. So, <laughs> impish impish smile Nick. Impish smile Nick. Well, now I am thrilled. I am thrilled to have Richard Shankman with us. Hello, Richard. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Hi. Thank you. Um, I hope everybody can hear me. Oh, you sound great on oh, okay, our end. Because as a listener, I was having a hard time hearing your, your previous guest. It, apparent, there's something with the phone thing. I heard that last week from people, too. That, uh, yeah, there's something when you're on hold or, that it's a little a little challenging. And since the station uh, owner is standing here right now, he, <laughs> he's getting this firsthand feedback. So hopefully he can work on that. I mean, welcome, Richard. I am so excited to have you here. I am a huge admirer of your work, and I have been for a number of years. Uh, wow. Going, Thanks. you know, not just the original, the man from Earth, but also <clears throat> I saw Abraham Lincoln versus the zombies. Well, I tell you, if you're going to see one zombie movie about the writing of the Gettysburg Address, <laughs> I'm sure you know that's the one to see. Yeah. I think it's that's the that's the one to see. Well, I had to see it because you know Timur Bekmambetov Mamdatov did Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, based yes. based on the book. Well, if I'm going to see that one, come on, let let's just go see one that is straight up Abraham Lincoln and the zombies. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, uh, the, 
the people who who hired me to make that movie, I think, you know, were hoping that to some degree there'd be, uh, you know, some drafting off of the studio picture. Mm. But I never actually read that book or saw that movie. I, I really went in such a completely different direction. You did. Um, my, you know, because also my feeling was, if we're going to make a movie about Abraham Lincoln, let's like make a movie about the Abraham Lincoln we all know and love. You know, the the sad older gentleman, the president. You know, the the face from the five dollar bill. You know, that's mm-hmm. not the young swinging Abe. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good way to describe the one in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of my favorite parts, though, I got to say, is, is Dominic Cooper in Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. But, well, I like Dominic Cooper in anything. In anything. I, I, I just caught him again in Reasonable Doubt uh, over the weekend. It was playing on cable. and it, like, oh, He's the greatest, and Preacher is fantastic. And oh, he, you know, he's, yeah, he's the, great in that. There's nothing that he can't do. Dominic is fabulous. <laughs> well, talk about... And I love Miss Howard Stark. Oh. <laughs> yes. Well... We're here now because of, not because of Abraham Lincoln or Dominic Cooper, Mischief Knight, but the man from Earth, Holocene. Oh, my God, Richard. I am just, before the show started, I was, tell, I was telling Steve how much I love this film, how much I love the first one. But what you do, you give us ruminations on life. And I know, you know, Emerson uh, Bixby, screenwriter on this, Son of John who wrote the, the Man from Earth 10 years ago. But we've got observations on the world, pollution, aging, self-centeredness, um, the man, man's lack of caring. You get open up a great discussion of faith versus science and the coexistence of both. Just absolutely. There is so much food for thought here that is presented so eloquently and so beautifully that I could have watched another another five hours of this film. Well, uh, hopefully <laughs> that's what will happen. The uh, well, first of all, thank you, thank you so much. You know, one of the reasons it took so long to make this movie was because uh, the writing took forever. Because I had uh, Emerson and I had extremely large shoes to fill. You know, Jerome Bixby was a legendary American science fiction writer, and while he only wrote The Man from Earth in his final months of life he mm-hmm. had been thinking about it for decades 40 50 years wow. uh, he even wrote a version of it for star trek in an, ep- in an episode called yeah. requiem for methuselah so um you know so to 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 put this movie together it definitely was a lot of effort to, to try to get the screenplay to measure up to the original and hopefully we've we've come close to that um but oh but the idea of the movie was to sort of double as a TV pilot. So the hope would be that people would see this movie and say, wow, I want to see another five or 13 hours of this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And and give us the go-ahead to go, you know, make a a limited series, uh, the first season of a limited series based on The Man from Earth. This would be a fabulous series. How's it turning out so far? Well, we're just unleashing the movie on the marketplace this week. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, the idea was that we would put it out there and see how people respond. 
And, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll be somebody else's idea. Maybe some executive at Netflix or Hulu or something will, will see the movie and say, man, this should be a series. And they'll come to us and I'll say, God, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny because Steve and I were talking about that at the top of the show about all these new avenues that have opened up for really good storytelling. The Amazons, the Hulus, the Netflixes, all this original, the original movie content and series content that's happening now. And I think there's definitely a place for the Man from Earth Holocene. You know, I'm I'm curious in as you and Emerson were developing this this particular film, um, how how did you go about deciding which issues to really expand upon and tackle and bring into play here? I mean, your religious thematics here are off the charts but so balanced. That's one of the great things with the film. Everything you present is so balanced with pros and cons and opposite sides of the fence presented in a very casual, ordinary way. Well, that template was established perfectly in the original film. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in terms of finding a sense of balance, all I had to do was follow what was established in the original Man from Earth. In terms of the content, you know, theology, not to spoil anything for anybody, but theology is front and center with this material. Yeah. So you're, there are always going to be theological debates that arise from any Man from Earth story. Um, and as for the rest of it, it became, it, it sort of started very organically for me, kind of, well, well what, what would happen to John next? Where would he go? He's now left... Uh, this college that we saw him in, and he's presumably going to go, you know, reinvent himself as a, once again and get another teaching job somewhere. And then what happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one thing. The the other thing was that you know we were committed to working with the same actor because David Lee Smith is so fantastic, and you know he had visibly aged. Yeah. And so the question became well, why is the fourteen thousand year old man suddenly aging? <laughs> And I think that, uh, and then, you know, and it, it, all these questions just kind of answer themselves. You know, there's a very, very strong feeling in the scientific community that just basically since the Industrial Revolution, mankind's effect on the planet is so huge as to actually have created a new geological epoch called the, Holoc- uh, called the Anthropocene. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the Holocene, what, you know, that we all sort of have been living in for the you know, last long, long, long time, has ended and maybe we ended it and so if that's the case what does that mean and how would it affect the guy like john oldman who is Mm. the man from earth meaning he is he is as connected to the earth as any of us could be Mm -hmm. yeah and of course you bring in as you're you know from a visual standpoint you bring in all these incredible touchstones that do hearken to the path and the life that he has traveled um, and as, as I mentioned earlier to Steve, it's like you have students here that are actually inquisitive. They read books, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and they're, obs- you know, and they're making observations of, is that a Van Gogh? No, that can't be a Van Gogh. That's a $3 cheap imitation. No, I think that's a real Van Gogh. And, you know, and then they pick up books that you would not find a typical person you know, understanding what they were, yet you really heighten our intelligence 
with this story, but you add all the visual touchstones to make it very tangible and add another layer to a sensory experience in watching this. Well, thank you. You know, it was funny. One of the conflicts that I had with Emerson early on was uh, his feeling was, it can't be students. Students wouldn't have the knowledge. They wouldn't have the inquisitive nature. It's got to be college professors. And I said, well, first of all, we did college professors in the first movie. And second of all, I have a teenage daughter, and she is inquisitive and brilliant and reads books and researches things and has an open mind and is always acquiring knowledge. And, and I just thought, I, I know these kids. I see them every day. I mean, this generation is uh, wonderful. They're deep thinking people, they're caring people, they care about the planet, they care about uh, their fellow man, and uh, I think that those are great kids to make a movie about. Mm -hmm. And of course, you did throw in the the typical, the the student tropes. We have, you know, the one student that has the hots for her teacher. We've we've got another one that can't seem to stay off their social media. Um, So you, very believable, very realistic but again, you all, you have the visual touchstones that add that extra layer to this story. Um, well, you know, we try to have the thing take place in the real world, and um, you know, and 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 make it seem recognizable. You know, and mm-hmm. and so, for example, a lot of things in John's cabin actually, in my mind, were Caroline's possessions. Mm-hmm. You know, because she's a, a, a deeply spiritual person. And so, uh, but of course, you know, one of the things about uh, a guy like John Oldman, as he sort of talked about in the original movie, is, I don't want to say his disdain for artifacts, but the fact that maybe they don't mean that much to him, except like the rest of us, maybe he's a little bit hypocritical about that, because he holds on to the Van Gogh, and mm-hmm. he's held on to a few other things, too. Um and maybe even things that he shouldn't hold on to. Maybe things that could, you know, provide a clue to his past. Maybe he shouldn't have held on to them. But, but I think he's just uh, sentimental enough, maybe, that that he does hold on to some things. And so these are the touchstones in our lives. Uh, are you referring to something specific? Oh well, no. It's like you know the fact that he held on to books in particular. You know, there was one box in the basement, and it was all books, and. You know, that I find very, very telling, that when somebody holds on to something, they hold on to books. I don't care who wrote them, but it's books. It's the printed word. It's the written word. And I think in the construct of your story, I think that's very significant here. Well, it's, yeah, you're right. And, um, boy, and in the future, you know, when the big, um, when the the electrical grid collapses and whatnot, all we're going to have left is paper. Mm -hmm. And so... uh, Hopefully, we're doing a good job of, of keeping all the important books uh, on paper in enough places that we'll have access to that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, something you have an incredible cast here. You get David David Lee Smith to come back. William Cott comes back as as Art Jenkins, and he's he's a scream. I I just I worked with him on a few episodes of Greatest American Hero decades ago, so it's nice to always see you know that he's working. John Billingsley came back on. But then you add, okay, Vanessa Williams, and I know you've had a relationship with Vanessa for quite a while, going back to the days of a diva Christmas Carol. Yes. Which uh, is one of my 
absolute guilty holiday pleasures. You know, I, I, I must see that every year. <laughs> hey, you know what? Not so guilty. We had our best year ever last year. It, it played 13 times uh, Christmas uh, 2016 or 2017. So that, that's what I made that movie 16, 17 years ago. Yeah. We're playing it every year. Wow. Well, you know, and they're getting ready now. You know, Hallmark and Lifetime, they're getting ready at the end of this month. They start their countdown to Christmas at the end of October. Yeah. Knock wood. Um, go, maybe we'll go for 20 places. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also get Michael Dorn. And it's not too often that we really get to see. Michael Dorn is, is kind of particular about what he does. But I love the fact that. We have the original creator of Jerome Bixby wrote original Star Trek episodes. We have Michael Dorn, who carried on the Star Trek legacy and is now here. So it's kind of like all those connections that a 14,000-year-old man would make on this planet. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it is really lovely. We, we do what we can to keep the Star Trek connection alive. Uh, we were so lucky to have a number of Star Trek veterans in the original movie. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and so it was really, really nice to be able to... Of course, Vanessa's a, a Star Trek veteran as well. She I was, was uh, She played, I guess, a, a madam, basically, an interstellar madam in an episode of uh, Next Gen. Uh, and Dorn, of course, I, has probably been in more Star Trek episodes than any other living actor. Um, you know, I'm just very lucky reaching out to people and giving them the script, and, and, and they respond, and, and they come on board. It's, uh, it's really, really lucky, but... Um, but boy, how about those those young actors? Uh, oh my god! I mean, the the young cast is Sterling Knight. Where did you find him as Philip? He is amazing. And well, of course, Sterling Knight is the biggest star of of the four. You know, he he's yep. he's got quite a following from his work on Disney and Nickelodeon, mm-hmm. uh, or Nickelodeon, maybe not Disney. Um, and in fact, when my daughter heard we had Sterling Knight in the movie, she and her friend freaked out. <laughs> they remember him from uh, from his Nick shows. But you know, he's grown up into being an extremely accomplished actor. He uh, he does a wonderful job in the movie, and uh, you know, he's a guy. You know, he's definitely a guy who can pick and choose whatever he wants to mm-hmm. do. And uh, he just really responded to the writing, and he came on board. And I'm so glad he did. And Akemi Look is oh. um, someone who I think is exploding right now. She's got lots of projects coming out uh, over the course of the next year. And I think uh, when she came in and auditioned, and she just blew the room apart. And I just thought I, I couldn't even consider anybody else. No, she is amazing. The energy that she brings as Isabel, the energy and intelligence and the inquisitiveness, I mean, all rolled into one package. She is absolutely amazing. You know, and then you complement those two really, really strong actors. You've got Brittany Saren in there and then Carlos Knight that round yep. out our 21st century Scooby gang, so to speak. Yeah, I know. Everybody keeps saying that. It's funny. that It's never in my mind until we finish the movie. And that's what, how everybody <laughs> refers to it as the Scooby gang. Um, I should have gotten him a van. Yeah, Carlos <laughs> is great. He brought so much energy and humor. And Brittany... Uh, is an incredibly intelligent actress. You know, she plays this slightly shallower character in the movie, but boy, that's so not her. I mean, mm-hmm. she is, uh, she's, um, she's really, really good. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a secret. She, she read for Isabel. Really? And she was great as Isabel. Um, but 
I really saw, you know, but at that point I'd already seen a Kemi, and so it was really hard for me to say, oh, but, but, but. So I asked Brittany to come back and read for Tara, and she destroyed on Tara as well. So that was that. You know, I had my, had my two female leads cast. I mean, I think, I think you made a wise choice there with that decision. But, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You know, and you mentioned how the kid, how the, you know, these young actors are blowing up. Somebody else is blowing up. Your DP. Richard Violet. Oh my God! Yeah, uh, he's doing. He's he's now on board with Tyler Perry doing all the Tyler Perry stuff. Wow. Yeah, he's in, in fact he had to literally get a uh, take a leave of absence from Tyler um, to come do Mad from Earth because uh, Tyler has got him doing back to back movies and TV shows, and I mean literally back to back. You know, Tyler does. I don't know, 100 episodes of TV a year or 150 episodes of TV a year, plus another half a dozen movies, plus his live shows. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. I think he has three or four replicants that look just like him. Tyler, he's got that formula down, that system down. He is brilliant beyond belief. But to watch, it's, it's amazing. To watch him, but Richard is deeply talented. We've done a number of movies together. I love him as a friend, and I love him as a DP. Uh, and so I, it was really important to me to, to have him do this. And so, like I said, he, he sort of, you know, basically cashed in vacation days, whatever the hell it was, so he could, so he could leave. And they even, Tyler even pushed back one of his projects, basically. Oh, my God. Uh, so that Richard could come to L.A. and make this movie with me. Oh, well, unfortunately, Richard, we are, like, almost out of time for the whole show here. This is killing me because I, I just, I love this film so much. I love the issues in here. That you present. I'm, I, I vouch for that because I'm telling you for the 10 minutes before we even went on air, she was going on about the film. So I'm, I'm very anxious to see this. Well, thank you. Well, well by all means, have me back. Uh, if I could do a quick plug. Of course. Uh, coming in November, we're actually re-releasing the original Manforth. <gasps> we've, we've gone back to the original SD dailies and re-converted it to HD, re-upresed it, re-color corrected it with a noise reduction. We've done a feature-length documentary about the making of the movie and the legacy that it's had in the years since. So that comes out November 21st on DVD and Blu-ray. And then, um, obviously, over the next few weeks, Mad from Earth Holocene is playing theatrically. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it'll be out on VOD and DVD in January. Well, now that the original is coming back out on the 21st of November, if somebody wants to come back on the show on November 20th to talk about the, the original, you are more than welcome, Richard. <laughs> I, would, I would love to. Uh, please have me back. Oh, any time. But yeah, no, that would be perfect to have you come back on the day before that it comes out. So everybody is fresh in their mind and they can rush out and buy it. (laughs) I'm there. Oh, Richard, thank you so, so much. This has been a real treat. And everybody, for a very, an intelligent film, a well-done film, a thought-provoking film, The Man from Earth, Holocene, it is out this week. See it, see it, see it. You won't re- you. you won't regret it. Oh, Richard, thank you, and I will talk to you again soon. All right, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. Incredible films today. Yeah. Incredible guests. Yeah. Um, just sitting I, the here listening. The look on your face. No, just... I mean, because <laughs> to suck in, to hear all the, the knowledge and experience and love that is these people are 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 sharing you know what i mean like yeah. it's you know as everyone was talking i'm sitting there listening you know it's it's easy for people to 
see a movie that's not so good and uh, tear it to shreds. Mm -hmm. It's easy for the average person to do it. But even those movies, number one, started with a good intention. And number two, a lot of work went into them. Well. You know, uh, and, and, and so even so, so much so when movies like, you know, the, uh, today's movies um, come out and they turn out great. I mean, that's that's a testament to the people that are making those movies. Yeah. It really is. Well, and you know that, you know, no, I will always try and find something because having been behind the lens, behind the camera, yeah. I know how hard people work to get these films done. I financed enough of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I... I know what it takes, and I will always try and find something. There is something, be it the intent, which is why even if a film I'm not pleased with the outcome and I can go through a checklist of things that needed to be done better, could have been done better, that are problematic, I will never say I don't like it or I hate it. You know that. Yeah. I don't say that. Yeah. Because there is always something worthwhile in there that one of those artisans, one of those craftsmen, contributed to that film yeah, that's right and oh what is this five seconds and are they going to rerun your ncis episode <laughs> who knows sometime soon we, last we... night it was it was great uh, it's tough to watch yourself uh as always uh, you know that's not my it's one of my least favorite things to do but it's important to do so um so i recorded it and uh, okay. you know everybody tweeted and Facebooked me, oh, you're great, you're great. Thank uh, well, you. I, Thank I, you I was watching the, the, series, the season four finale of The Last Ship. <laughs> Thanks for being honest, Deb. Hey, everybody knows, <laughs> everybody that. knows, Sunday night I am live tweeting I, Last Ship. I do know that. Yes, yeah. with, with yeah. you know, Mr. Stephen Kane, with, with my buddy, Bren Foster, who plays Wolf. Um, yeah, Emerson Brooks. Emerson has done the show. Uh, Al Cronell, who used to be on the show, he's done behind the lens. Right. So now I'm bucking for next season to get uh, some of the other cast on the show. Well, good luck. But uh, no. So that's why I missed your show. Yeah, that's totally okay. You know, okay. on this day and age with DVR, with recording and stuff, I you can you can I see it as long as you watch. You can come over and watch my okay. DVR. How about that? All right. All right. Well. Nick's going to throw us off the air in a second here. Stephen <laughs> Alaric, thank you, thank you, thank you, my thank friend, you, for being thank here. Thank you and for I, having and me. And I know you'll come back again because then you have to talk about your indie film that you're doing. I absolutely will. And thank you to Kate Nolan, Remy Abergenois, Richard Shankman, Bloodstripe, Out This Friday, The Man from Earth, Holocene, Out This Friday, two superior movies, see them. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.